0: You listen to this podcast because you like books, or maybe because you like learning, or maybe you just like the sound of my voice lulling you to sleep. If it's the first two, Audible has you covered. Too busy to read? Driving and don't want to run into another dog? Audible is a huge library of audiobooks where people read to you like you're a kid again. And guess what? You can try it out for free! Just go to readlearnlivepodcast.com slash audible to sign up for your free trial today.
1: There are so many other places where I felt inspired by what uh, I saw and like it made me believe, um, like it kept my belief of uh, in, in Brooklyn like alive. And I was like, ah, oh, I'm really glad that these places exist, that these people care for these places. and. Although it was not inspir- inspiring, inspiration for the book, I thought it was like inspiring like in life in general. I thought that this was really great that people care about these places and we are not like the only like weirdos to think that it's interesting.
0: Hello and welcome to Read, Learn, Live. I'm your acclaimed host, John Monaster, and I'd like to welcome you to Episode 21, We're Old Enough to Drink. As a reminder, if you have ideas for books you'd like to see featured, or of authors you want to put me in touch with, you can reach me at jon at readlearnlivepodcast.com. Today I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with Augustin Pesquet and Michelle Young about their book, Secret Brooklyn, An Unusual Guide. Michelle Young is a graduate of Harvard College in the history of art and architecture and holds a master's degree in urban planning from Columbia University Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation, where she is an adjunct professor of architecture. She is the author of Secret Brooklyn, An Unusual Guide, New York, Hidden Bars and Restaurants, and Broadway. Michelle appears regularly as a guest speaker in documentaries, television, and at conferences on urban issues. She has traveled to over 40 countries and is always looking for the next adventure. Augustin Pasquet is from Paris, has lived in Nigeria, Switzerland, and Thailand, and recently fell in love with Brooklyn, where he lives now. He has a master's degree in marketing from ESSCA Business School in France and worked at L'Oreal in sales and marketing for seven years. Augustin spends his off time traveling, taking pictures with his Canon 5D camera, or his rapidly increasing Lomo collection. He has traveled to 25 countries, including Cuba, Madagascar, and Bolivia. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. All right, hello, everyone. Welcome to the Read, Learn, Live podcast. I'm your host, John Manaster, sitting here in lovely New York City with my guests for the day, Augustón Pesquet and Michelle Young. Say hello. Hello. Hi. Awesome. I am super excited to talk with them about their work with Untapped Cities, and their book, Secret Brooklyn, uh, which is amazing. I saw th- I went to the launch and saw them talk about it, and they had great stories, and I knew I had to have them on the podcast. So I'm super excited, and I always like to start off by asking one of you to summarize the book for us.
2: I guess that's fallen to I me. saw
0: that, yeah, that mic turn. <laughs> uh,
2: so Secret Bo- Brooklyn um, has a subhead subtitle called um an unusual guide so secret mm. brooklyn an unusual guide and it's really a guide an insider's guide written by people from brooklyn the whole series mm-hmm. um the secret book series are all written by people that live in the various places that they take place sure so you know if it's secret new york or secret dublin um, the authors are all people that live there versus sort of this overarching large organization writing about places that they yeah. might not. It just have been sends to. people out maybe for a little bit. Exactly. Write, yeah. Back. Yeah.
1: I would also add that on, to build on top of what you're saying, that it's a guide that's for residents more than for tourists. Like, of course, if you're a tourist and you want to go off the beaten path, that's a great guide for you. But if you're a resident and you've lived here all your life, that's also a guide for you.
0: Yeah. That sounds great and that's what drew me to this book also, being a resident uh, and I live in Crown Heights and I just found out you guys are my neighbors, so <laughs> it's awesome that we're both uh, living in Brooklyn and we, now I can use this book to, to explore. So I want to get into the writing process a little bit before we talk about what's actually in the book. And so I always like to ask, why did you decide to write the book essentially? Why did you decide now was the right time and you were going to focus on Brooklyn?
2: Uh, So we were living in Manhattan on the Upper West Side until uh, late 2015, Mm -hmm. in which we bought a place in Crown Heights. Um, And we had previously written a book for the same publisher called uh, New York Hidden Bars and Restaurants. And we noticed that they had a secret New York overall guide with a few Brooklyn entries, but there Mm -hmm. wasn't anything specific to Brooklyn. And with Brooklyn being so hot, uh, globally, we pitched... Um, the idea that we would write Secret Brooklyn, and it was also a great opportunity for us to uh, ju- like really jumpstart our exploration of the borough. We knew quite a lot about it from our work at Untapped Cities, but mm-hmm. um, we went several times a week, you know, to new places, uh, brought our friends with us. So it was both like a career endeavor, but also a social endeavor. Yeah, um, sounds like fun. Yeah, exactly.
0: That's great. It's always great when you can, when you can combine those, those two things, work and fun. <laughs> and I'm sure your friends appreciate it, too, getting taken around in all sorts of strange places. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the next question I wanted to get into about, about the writing. So maybe something that you, while you were actually writing the book itself, was there something that surprised you that came out when you were putting words to paper? I know you did a lot of research for the book as well. There's a lot of historical information in there. Was there anything in particular you learned while you were writing that, that surprised you?
2: Hmm. We're going to have to s- flip through it. Yeah. <laughs> the answer
0: can also be no. You can already have known no, everything. No, no, no. <laughs> For <laughs> no, sure
2: not. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think to me it's more like um, as we were doing research on the places and as uh, like many things, we could discover many things online, but sure. when we went in person to these places, there was always more to the story. And so in Crown Heights since you mentioned it there is um, a, a, an old like abandoned uh, tunnels mm-hmm. below the brewery that's at the corner of Franklin and Bergen and in the basement there are the aged cheese and yeah. so we knew about this but going there and meeting with the people who actually run the place, you realize that it's like a whole new world that like, yeah. uh, like o- very comparable to like the world of like, uh, winemakers or there's like, like so artisanal cheeses, yeah, and all yeah, artisanal yeah. cheeses, like how they were, um, preparing some cheeses for like some competition, how they were comparing how it ages here versus Vermont, like the same cheese from like the same production to mm-hmm. see like how the aging process impacts like the taste and etc. And so, I think going into these different places uh, was really interesting because we discovered like so much more than what we could find online. And so that's probably what we discovered in the process of writing. Yeah, the
0: book. it's a good life lesson in general. Sometimes just get off the Internet and show up. Yeah,
2: I think similarly, all the characters we've met while doing this sometimes planned because we had arranged beforehand who we were going to speak to. But mm-hmm. sometimes it was completely random. And so I think the best example of that is when we went to t- photograph the remnants of a Park Slope plane crash in 1960. Um, and we really thought we were there just to photograph the physical evidence, mm-hmm. which include um, tops of buildings being reconstructed, um, et cetera. And as we were photographing on what we think is the coldest day of that <laughs> winter, yeah, um, there was almost no one on the street except us. Right. And um, a guy walks by and says, do you know what you're photographing? Um, and we said, yes, we're photographing the Park Slope plane crash. Um, and I think he was sort of impressed that we were doing this. Uh, and then paused and said, should I show it to his friend? Should I show them the piece de resistance? Right. Um, and you're like, yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. And so we then followed him into his apartment, <laughs> knowing that something great was going right. to ensue. And um, he actually had pieces of the plane Um, And he's an artist, so he had collected them um, from an empty lot that used to be the church that was destroyed. Mm -hmm. And these pieces, I I think, had been sitting there for probably almost a decade. So um, we got to talk to him about his experience and why he was collecting and what he's done with some of these pieces. And um, so I think some of the best moments we've had were serendipitous. And then combined with the people of Brooklyn really like opening their doors to us um across many of these locations
0: that's great that's wonderful that happened what a, what a crazy story
1: yeah and i had read actually that in the new york times that one guy had a piece of the plane in, in right. his backyard so when he showed up in the street when it was like so cool and nobody was in the street i was like wait could this be the yeah. guy what <laughs> are <so> the odds <laughs> yeah I was like what are the odds and then it, it, it ended up being him which was like really really fun it yeah.
0: is wow so the times knew about it somehow they were tipped off
1: Yes, they had mm. written about it like a long time ago, but I mean, I there was like no information on who the guy was. So the right. fact that we Just met like, him anonymous. was completely yeah. like uh, luck. Uh, yeah. yeah, there it is.
0: Uh, was there a particular moment of inspiration you guys had while you were putting the book together? Anything that was like an aha, like this is how it should be?
2: I think we had specific places that were sort of our must-hits. Um and a lot of them were places that we weren't sure where we were going to get get into. Mm. So, I think we had um this like dream list and we kind of slowly picked at it and then um really persisted in some in some cases. Yeah. And I think we got we got everywhere that we yeah. wanted to, but some of them took more time than others.
1: And I think for the inspiration um to me there's this idea that uh, Brooklyn inspires me like as a, as a borough and mm-hmm. like places and people are I think inspiring and while uh, while visiting these places uh, like I was mentioning the Cheese Cave earlier but like there are so many other places where I felt inspired by what uh, I saw and like it made me believe, um, like it kept my belief of, uh, in, in Brooklyn like alive and I was mm-hmm. like oh, I'm really glad that these places exist that these people care for these places, and uh, although it was not inspir- inspiring inspiration for the book, I thought it was like inspiring like in life in general. I thought that this was really great that people care about these places, and we are not like the only like weirdos to think that it's interesting. And so this was inspiring, although it's not inspiration directly related to uh, the writing, or uh, it, it was it was very inspiring.
0: Yeah, it's sort of the idea that there's still hope, uh, you know yes. like when it comes down to it, you know people still care, people want to put an effort and you guys can can find common ground from there. Mm-hmm. That's great. So yeah, we were, we're kind of getting, you were alluding to that as we were talking, Michelle, but how did you decide what to include or not? Because there was probably some stuff that you, I mean, obviously some stuff that you couldn't get to, then that's off. But there was some stuff maybe you could, but that you took out or whatever. How did you figure out the final list? Uh,
2: so we started with a larger list and of course got published. Um, sometimes we would get to a place and it no longer existed sometimes uh, we would get to a place and it wasn't uh, necessarily enough to talk about in the format that the book has. So the Mm. book has one page of a photograph um, and the other side is one whole page of text. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot more than uh, a normal kind of touristic guide where you might have a few sentences for each location. Go check this out because it's cool. Exactly, so you really needed a significant backstory and so I think there were some cases where we got there and we're like, okay, either it's not hidden enough or there's not enough of a backstory, so we, we would take them out.
0: Okay. You had a process. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that but was I a shrug
0: for those of you not watching. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> for the original uh, list, like when we were thinking, should that go into the book or not? The, the question that we really asked ourselves uh, throughout the book and throughout the selection process was a bit what, I, what we talked about at the beginning but if someone lived in this neighborhood like their whole life is this place going to be surprising to them uh, mm-hmm. so this is really what guided uh, what guided the original selection and then when we get there uh, to michelle's point like sometimes we were disappointed or not but uh, uh, the original idea was like is it going to be surprising to someone who lived here their, their whole life
0: mm, that's a great rubric I think that's a great way to measure any exploration mm-hmm. any ideas you have i like that a lot So uh, in the book, you have Brooklyn kind of broken up into sections. And I I thought that was interesting because I hadn't really seen Brooklyn split up the way you you (laughs) did it. So I feel like it's either original or you found a very hidden source for your your geographic breakup. So how how did that happen? How did you decide to split it up?
2: Yes. So I have to give credit here to the writer Hannah Frischberg from Brooklyn, Mm -hmm. a friend of mine um when we had to come up with the chapter titles i definitely did struggle because it's not a guide in which we consciously made sure that every part of brooklyn was covered Mm -hmm. although uh, we had this overall idea of the geography but um there were definitely some areas in which there were more entries and there were areas that there were fewer so we couldn't break it up in the traditional neighborhood boundaries yeah um and so i decided to ask someone who um, has been writing about Brooklyn for a long time, for her advice. Yeah. So um, she helped come up with this based on the maps that I had given her uh, of the locations. Cool. And then we worked through some of the copy, but yeah.
0: No, it's really interesting. Much I credit mean, to her. <laughs> yeah, that sounds, that's great. It's good to have someone to help out, phone a friend. <laughs> so the last question I want to ask about the process was, uh, so that you're the first people I've interviewed that are co-writers. So you co-wrote this book, this was uh, you guys did a ton of work together on this and so i want to know how did you resolve the disagreements that came up how'd you work through that yeah
2: so technically i did the writing and Augustan did the photography but Ah. together we came up with the list of places that we wanted okay so there was probably not so much disagreements about the writing itself
0: (laughs) because you took care of that yeah
1: Yeah. (laughs) i think the 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 debates we had uh, within us were probably uh, between us was probably due like around uh, which places should we include or not. But the writing itself, yeah, was not a problem. <laughs> okay, well good. Nor was the photo, actually, but yeah. Yeah, yeah the <laughs> photography was great, I heard, right? <laughs>
0: yeah, thank you. Awesome. So yeah, let's get into the book itself. And so I'm just kind of, p- I picked some things that I thought were interesting um, to ask questions about. And so there's an entry about old subway cars and there's a transit museum. And so y- you, you wrote this subheader that read Nostalgia Underground, which I thought was really interesting, and so I just thought it would be great to hear you talk about the Transit Museum, and why you thought people might be nostalgic for subway cars, especially ones that they uh, probably never rode in.
2: Yeah, so I think the Transit Museum is a great example um, of how we angled a location that might be known mm-hmm. to people in the neighborhood, um, but I noticed when I was visiting, people saying, oh, I need to know that this lower level existed. Uh And I've been here X number of times. So the entry focuses on this lower level of the Transit Museum, which is full of two tracks of um, vintage vintage train cars. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, they really cover almost all, I think, the periods of the New York City subway system, including specialty cars like the money train that collected the money uh, and the tokens, and then um, a special train that was that went to, I think, um, the Mets stadium okay. that had the colors like of an the Express. Mets painted. Yeah. Um, and I think people are just, in general, first uh, fascinated and obsessed with transportation because it's something that impacts everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, secondly, they just love seeing how how people traveled in the past hmm. and how um, how it's evolved since then. And I think there's a, a sense of always wondering, was it better back then or is it better yeah, now?
0: Right. <laughs> Especially because the subway system seemingly has been unchanged for exactly. quite some time.
2: And I think some of the amenities back then um, people really like because there seemed to be a real attention to detail, which mm-hmm was probably changed because it's not as efficient for cleaning, but the wicker seats, the wooden fans. um, Hmm. And then, of course, down there, there, all the trains have vintage ads. So Ah. um, they really give a sense of what it might have been like to ride these trains in that time period.
1: In some train cars, you can also see like a a little shelf where... uh, gentlemen and ladies could put their hats so oh that's wow. really like old school and yeah. so these are like some fun touch that you don't really see in today's cars yeah. So, yeah. yeah you wouldn't even think about that yeah so your point michelle was
0: more that maybe people are nostalgic for the past more generally and the transit part is because it affects everyone's lives so that's that's maybe what they would be i think so yeah that's yeah. so interesting yeah because i think a lot of people today are just complaining Right about the subway like it's just a f- source of frustration for them so maybe they can idealize oh in the past it was so nice and i could put my hat on the subway it was so convenient
2: yeah and, and i think if we think even all the way back to when the first subway line was launched there was such mm-hmm. an excitement right um and like a real spectacle that uh accompanied the first subway car that that took off from city hall um one of the things it's not in this book because it's not in brooklyn but um the guy who financed the subway, the first subway line had his own private subway car that he was able to run wow. uh, along the subway lines and could connect it to like the East Coast trains. <laughs>
1: that's amazing for, for those who are interested this car is actually uh in the connecticut uh trolley museum and it's possible to visit it and it's spectacular you have like a an office a mini kitchen you have like match strikers for his cigars on wow. the wall it's like it's a it's a very cool Spared no expense a very special place yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, so when i was at the book launch you guys had rooftop reds wine and Rooftop Reds is the first commercial rooftop vineyard. And so I was just curious uh, about what they're up to and and why you think that was important for the future of uh, urban agriculture.
1: Yeah, I think so. It's it's the world's first rooftop vineyard, like commercially viable rooftop vineyard. And to us, it's important because at Untapped Cities, we try to help uh, people see their cities differently. Mm -hmm. And we're very interested in the different experiments that people uh, make on a large scale uh, on how they can uh, reuse buildings or use like unused spaces and rooftops are very often um, are not very used in New York City. Uh, you would have like mecha- you often have like mechanical rooftops with like AC units or sometimes you have some place for like residents. But if we think of the food we eat and the the, the wine we drink, we have to import this from uh, other places in the United States in the mm-hmm. world. But if we can have like locally grown um, fruits, vegetables. Uh, and tomorrow wine uh, that's pretty remarkable because we cut on like the supply chain it's like it reduces the impact on the environment it contributes to like cool off the cities so less use of ac so it really has uh, an impact that is um that is much greater than a than what it may seem at first. And mm-hmm. so if this works here, it also means that we could potentially have like wines in many more rooftops. And there, so There uh, are rooftops everywhere. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> and uh, I remember when uh, Elon Musk like launched, uh, like announced like the, the Power Wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, he showed this little dot on the map of the US that said basically if we were to pair like the entire US, like this is the amount of like solar that it would take and this would be in, like unused spaces. And so it's barely anything. And I'm pretty sure that for food is the same thing because just next to Rooftop Reds is Brooklyn Grange and they're also like producing like a lot of fruits and vegetables over there mm-hmm. and um, it's a different way to use the uh, the unused space in the city. So I think it's important. Yeah. And also so like uh, because you've never seen this anywhere else when you arrive there it's just like it has a you're like wow, wow that's so cool. Like you see like vines growing yeah, and the it's, it's just a very uh, it's yeah. very exciting actually. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That is exciting. It's It's sort of Maybe something that we can, like a future we can be excited about. That's not one hundred percent focused on like the next phone or some like technology item, right? It's like yeah, something else. Exactly,
1: and maybe you know, maybe like two hundred years from now, we'll look back. We will look back on this and oh yeah, remember like this first like vineyard, but like now like every city has one. Right. uh, And it's exciting to feel like this may be the beginning of something, and Mm -hmm. that you can go there and see it for yourself. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
0: Everyone likes to be at the beginning, just like what you were saying about the launch of the subway. Like Mm -hmm. being able to say, I was there when it started. You know, that's the story you want to tell your kids. So in the entry for the robotic church, you wrote, in an era where popular technology is pushing ever towards virtual reality, amorphic robotic works uses analog technology to explore the human condition. Instead of getting sucked into a digital world, the kinetic sculptures remind us of what it means to be alive. So I particularly love that passage. And I thought the amorphic robotic works in general was really cool. So maybe talk about that place and what you meant when you wrote how its sculptures remind us of what it means to be alive.
2: So this was one of the most special places we went to. Um, so first, it's located in, in a former Norwegian seamen's church in mm. Red Hook. Uh, New York used to be dotted with churches for seagoers of all different countries. Um, and um it's been repurposed by an artist who runs this place called amorphic robotic works and so there it's a workshop studio but also a performance space Mm -hmm. so the main uh, space of what was the church is now set up for uh for performances of, of these robots and what he's done is create um a coordinated performance that he can control from a booth um, and each robot has like a specific task that they need to accomplish. So one of them needs to climb from the ground floor to the top of the church mm-hmm. as an example. Um, and I think it was just very refreshing to see artwork that was really getting to the core of things, of how things work. Um, yeah. and, um, I would say it's a very theoretical Piece, a theoretical exploration and so um the sense of being alive is connected to the fact that we are like imbuing uh materials and objects with human-like behaviors Mm -hmm. um and um, some of the artists other works uh use robotics or inflatables to explore other things about the human condition. So one of the projects for which he won a Guggenheim Fellowship for is using inflatables that reach over the Mexican border. Mm. And so they're on one side, but they can like kind of stretch a tentacle yeah. over. Um, and so I really loved also that, um, though his work is quite theoretical, um, this, that one was really rooted in issues that um, are affecting us today.
1: Yeah. And I think earlier we were talking about inspiration. This is Mm -hmm. clearly one place where after we left uh, the place, I was like, wow, I'm really glad this place exists. Mm -hmm. I'm really glad this type of projects are still going on in New York, in Brooklyn. This is inspiring. It is not purely driven by the forces of uh, money or real estate. It is pure art. And um, having like we spent like a few hours there maybe like one or two hours i don't know um there in the space and having the artist to walk us through his process was really uh, something very very special and um, and what i also liked about this place is that from the outside you have no idea what's going on inside it looks like a mm. church that's like not abandoned but clearly maybe not used like every sunday and uh so <laughs> it's a very unassuming facade and it's also what we do at Untapped, where we try to see things differently. And maybe I often say that at Untapped and on this book, we try to unearth uh, places that are doing interesting things. And you mm-hmm. may be walking by uh, every day uh, with, without knowing that actually behind these walls are these crazy things happening. And this is a very good example. Prime example, yeah. yeah. That's
0: yeah. It's really fascinating. I mean, it's it's interesting. That point you made about Michelle about. Um, when we ascribe sort of human ideas to things. Because I think we do that a lot. You know, it's like when people name their cars <laughs> or whatever, like we, we do that a lot. So I, it's interesting that that's kind of where they came from. But I'm trying to picture what you're describing, and it sounds like something like totally just like amazing and different, you know, so from what I remember from the entry, it's, it's a bit difficult to actually see though. So like what, what's the trick there? And, and this comes up in, in a lot of them. They're, it's sort yeah. of tricky to get to. So what's the trick there?
2: So the um, the artist has a Facebook page for Amorphic Robot Works mm-hmm. and there um, they post when these performances are taking place. Um, I would say that it's not on a regular schedule so you kind of have to just... Uh, pay attention. Pay attention. Yeah. Um, and I guess it depends on the priorities of what's going on in that workshop at that given time. But yeah, that's this one is definitely um a little more difficult and to see it there wasn't a performance going on around when we were writing it so we we specifically wrote them and asked if we could come visit
1: but i would say 95 percent of the places on this book in this book are uh, accessible but yeah uh, to michelle's point they may not be accessible like every day yeah uh, from nine to five maybe it's only like four times a year at the lowest or, uh, or more often, or just like appointments only, but sure. you can go see all these places yourself. You just have to plan. Yes. You have to <laughs> plan. And since you're likely a resident, uh, you'll be around when this place will open. Yes. So <laughs> Key. But good point. Yes. Yes. These are accessible. You can do these things.
0: Um, so I mean, but th- that's, that's kind of interesting though. The idea that it's, they're doing these incredible things, but it's not always available to see. I mean that to me that almost speaks of like that they're trying to that they want it for themselves to some degree right or may, i mean maybe it would just be too logistically financially difficult to have people coming and going whatever but i, I wonder if that's it's, since so many of these places are a bit more difficult to get to that you, you can't just walk in most of the time do you feel like that's why they were that's why they're secret Brooklyn you know it's like it's because they're a little bit more difficult and they take an extra step that a lot of people aren't going to take and is that is that uh I don't know is that fair you know for a lot of this
2: well I think um with the example of the robotic church it's really this guy's workshop and occasionally yeah. it's opened up so I yeah. think I understand in that sense the main goal is not as like a public facing theater mm-hmm. or anything like that it's really about the creation of the art and a location to do that.
1: Yeah. It depends what you're interested in. Most of these places are probably a little less uh, mainstream, but... It doesn't mean that they're not interesting, but they probably open to the public uh, in a way that's like proportional to like the interest that's out there, oh, uh, perhaps.
0: So you're trying to so you're trying to revive. This is a chicken and egg problem, then, right? <laughs> now you're trying to revive it. That's so correct. So you, you yeah. sell a thousand copies of the book, and everyone wants to go <laughs> check these places out. They better start opening up. I hope they will. This is the <laughs> trick. Well, because I remember the uh, what was it? The, the I think it was a story you told at the launch, the Veterans Museum or whatever. Yeah. Like how difficult it was to get in
1: there actually yeah actually the was veterans the veterans museum was fairly easy to get to okay. it was just like by appointment okay uh, but the one that was very hard was the puppet museum uh where mm. i went with my mom Is it the oh yeah, yeah yeah okay
0: <laughs> right at the it was just the one at the
1: at the brooklyn college
0: yeah yeah tell that's a good story why don't you tell yeah. the <laughs> tell a puppet museum story <laughs> the puppet library puppet library yeah and yeah, no, also
1: we there's a puppet library, which we discovered originally because it used to be stored uh, in the inside the Grand Army Plaza arch. And so I was like, wow, this is so cool. And you know, that we can enter the arch, and that's really great. But then the roof of the arch started leaking, so they mm. had to move the puppets to the Brooklyn College. And what kind of puppets are these? They're like giant puppets. Yeah. Uh, like way, I don't know, like... Uh, uh, 40, 50 feet tall? 40, 50 feet tall. Yeah, they're really like... Big puppets okay and so they are either of like animals or uh there's like a, a barack obama puppet like and and so anyway we went um in this in brooklyn college to and they have like no website no phone number so we reached out to another puppet group in brooklyn college called puppetry in practice and um they told us where uh, the puppet library was and so we went there but it was closed and because uh it's only on it's only open uh during um class year uh and
2: yeah it's um stored in a location where they run after school activities Mm -hmm. so it's only open um during the school year sure and not the summer and um and the puppets are located on the, bleach, the second-level bleacher of this gymnasium. So it, it creates this kind of really interesting juxtaposed scene of yeah. like uh, people playing sports and doing other activities, and then above them are 50-foot puppets uh, like down looking down. Yeah. Um, and to note that these type of puppets are usually used for parades. So, for example, mm-hmm. Greenwich Village Halloween Parade. Um, and it's a lending library, which is why it really doesn't have um, a public website or a phone number because it's really people that are involved in this industry uh, that need to know about how to access these puppets, and those people know.
0: Just (laughs) like you have to be able to use the puppets before you can access to them. I presume it's, I can't just walk in and know how to operate a 40-foot puppet. That's correct.
1: (laughs) And so the day I finally uh, was able to enter the... Puppet library I was with my mom and like my mom is like this 70 years old 65 years old like uh oops I hope she doesn't (laughs) (laughs) hear this like whatever age she is (laughs) full white hair woman like she really doesn't look like she she doesn't look like a threat at all and Mm -hmm. so we, it was super hard to access the place because the person running the after school program would not let us go see the puppets. And so we were like, hey, I'm just here with my mom. I just want to go see the puppets. Please let me in. And yeah. uh, it was incredibly challenging. But in the end, it worked. Uh, it took like uh, some negotiation, but it worked. <laughs> okay.
0: So now we, we have our lesson there. Bring your parents. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: yeah, that's so crazy. Uh, So, yeah, the last couple places kind of lead me to my next question, which is about the idea of mystery. And and we kind of talked about this earlier, but it was clear that sometimes you really wanted to keep some information off the printed page. You you wanted people to really take that extra step of finding out for themselves. And it may have been either because you thought it best or the person requested it. Um, So I want to mention the tour of the wild parrots specifically because... Written in the entry for the wild parrots, it specifically says, "We're not telling you." You know, mm-hmm. it's like it's not. It's, you just have to go. Does like I call, schedule it. It's it's a secret. And uh, so so maybe talk about the parrot tour because I thought the the story was interesting, the history, and then more broadly about how you balanced your desire to share versus trying to keep some information a secret still.
2: Yeah. So the the tour of the wild parrots is another one of uh, my favorite experiences that I went on. Um, Uh, This guy runs a monthly parrot safari tour um, in all different locations. Um, The ones that are publicly known are in Greenwood Cemetery, Um, but there's one uh, somewhere in Flatbush. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really, it's on a residential street. And um, I think keeping it secret is a combination of um, not wanting people to actually take the parrots or um, remove their nests, which... Mm -hmm could be very reachable c- compared to um, something like Greenwood Cemetery, where they're very high up in the architecture. Um, and I think that's the main um, the main reason for not disclosing it. But also, yeah. since it is a residential location, I don't think they want people um, constantly camping showing up out, yeah. and camping out. Um, but it's pretty amazing. I mean, when you, when you finally get to the street on this tour, and you look up and you realize there are nests everywhere.
0: Yeah. Yeah, tell tell the history. I, I mean, this I thought it was fascinating. Oh yeah,
2: so there are um, these monk parrots that live in Brooklyn, um, and the story goes that they arrived from Argentina in crates uh, mm-hmm. to JFK Airport. Um, one of the reasons they were coming here was that they were there were too many in Argentina, and the government had tried um, to eradicate them. Uh, through a system of paying farmers to kill them. And then that soon became uh, ripe with corruption. People were just sending in, like, legs of other birds, hoping to be paid for killing these specific parrots. And so they realized that a lot of people outside of Argentina really loved to collect exotic birds and Mm. buy them as pets. And so they started an export business, um, shipping these pets abroad. Um, And so they would come in through JFK Airport, and this was the era of high mafia activity um in the new york ports so when was this about um i believe it's the 70s but okay yeah um and so it was regular practice for uh some of the people that worked here that they would open one of the crates and take whatever was in there it was sort of just an agreed upon system yeah um so the story goes that they opened a crate and out flew um, all of the parrots all these parrots (laughs) and which and then they they took up residence kind of all over Brooklyn mm-hmm. um, and i think all the way out in some cases to long island hmm. um and there are probably other cases where they escaped from homes and from pet stores um but the main story is about um them coming from the the crates at jfk
0: yeah and that's it's interesting then it, you know to hear you say they they ended up all over the island you know mm-hmm. they, they're kind of went, went all over the place cuz now it seems like they've got two sort of neighborhoods where they hang out in so it's a it's a funny thought. They, at one point, they were just like flying for their lives all over the place. And somehow they all coalesced and came back together. And now well, they're I, th- th- I think
2: there are other locations that we, we just didn't mention. Ah, um, okay. More secrets. I think they're, they're easiest to see in Greenwood and mm-hmm. in this place in Flatbush. And I, I think there's one other location actually now that he, okay. he does tours of. But yeah, I think it's about... So they're dispersed.
0: hmm Okay. Yeah. So I really like the thought of the Japanese house and the picture Nice job, photographer. (laughs) But uh, it it really seems like a a great example people are unlikely to have heard about, right? Because it's sort of really tucked away in a far south neighborhood in Brooklyn. You're you're not just going to wander by it. Mm. I've never heard of it. So just maybe talk about what, what the house is all about and how you guys found out about it.
2: Yes, I think we had an article Yes, we had an article um, a few years back where one of our writers wrote about this Japanese house. Mm-hmm. Um, so we decided to dig a little deeper. Um, occasionally they give tours. It's still privately owned. Um, but the backstory of it is uh, we kind of have to go back to like the late 19th century, turn of the century. Um, following the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, in which uh, really America was introduced to a lot of um, Asian art. and and some of the countries for the first time. And really among the wealthy elite, um, what they used to call Orientalism, which is not Mm. a term that we like to use anymore, but it really took the country by storm um, in this social class. So a lot of people um, were decorating their rooms with the Japanese room, um, importing things from um, art like vases and all sorts of things from Asia. Mm -hmm. Um, So this house was a real estate endeavor um, in the early 1900s. And it was built as a speculative property, I think in the hopes that actually it would take off and there would be lots more of these houses. and so in the end, it didn't really take off. <laughs> so it's, it's now the only house, but it really mm. sits amongst an area that is full of Victorian mansions and single-family homes. And that in itself is actually very surprising because I think most people, when they think of Brooklyn, they might think downtown Brooklyn, they might think Williamsburg. Um, they still think of, of a pretty dense um, street grid. Yeah. And there, that whole area was laid out as more of a suburban uh, style. A lot of the streets are named after English places um and so this is one of the houses there and so it stands out now because it's not Victorian in style um and is the only one but it's it's fascinating and inside um is also decorated um in a Japanese style
1: it's a good example of a, a place so that you can enjoy from the outside, from the street, but I also yeah. believe that the person who lives in there does tours, uh, several times a year for some organizations. So it's also uh, if you're patient enough and are there, yeah, you can yeah. also get to see what it looks like inside.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting. Yeah, that you mentioned that it's the inside is decorated, uh, like uh, in a in that certain style, because it also probably then is almost like a time capsule or a historical museum of some sort, right? Because you know the way that that modern uh, or Asian designers are designing homes right now, and the interior of homes right now is probably not at all what it looks like in there. So it's also just it's also divorced from our world, and maybe it goes back to this whole nostalgia thing that we brought up earlier.
2: You're right. I think I think it's probably actually very divorced from from most things, from current time period, from an actual Asian house. Yeah, it's very specific to maybe a few decades of interior design in america
0: yeah what they thought (laughs) was the new trend or what they thought people would want or what they were trying to get people to want Mm -hmm. yeah okay on my list (laughs) actually everything's on the list but i don't know (laughs) actually that actually be pretty fun right to like get friends and say okay we have one year can we can we knock off everything on yeah
1: in the book
2: it's similar to writing a book having that list (laughs) yeah yeah same
1: idea (laughs) so So what we did is we created like a facebook group and so Ah. uh, we would post, It's called like it was called like Brooklyn Exploration or something. And mm-hmm. so every Saturday we would say in which neighborhood we were gonna, going to explore and uh-huh. invite all our friends to join. And so um, some joined like several times. And so it was really, a, it was a fun endeavor. It yeah. sounds
0: great. Uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, talking about just wandering around neighborhoods, one of the things I really liked about the book is how, it, you know, it made you rethink everyday places. So, you know, there are some places like we were talking about, the Japanese house, you're not, most of us, might not live in that neighborhood, it's not very dense, so we might not just walk around it. But there are lots of places in the book that are just neighborhoods and th- where people live and lots of people live and they're probably walking around and they might not know what's actually happening. And so I really liked the, the Headquarters of Murder, Inc. entry <laughs> uh, for, for that reason because it's there, there's all this stuff that happened and now it's just a bodega, it's just like a random little shop and you, would, you might never know, you know? And so it's like, I wonder about how many stories there are like that in all these shops, maybe even just in all the bodegas, you know, who knows, but in all these shops all over the place. So, yeah, tell us about Murder, Inc.
2: I'm really glad you brought up this particular entry because I had a real <laughs> debate with our publisher, ah. and I fought to include this one. <laughs> Good, I'm glad. So, um, Murder. the headquarters of Murder, Inc. are in a bodega uh, in... Um, East New York, Mm -hmm. Um, and Murder, Inc. was one of the most notorious uh, gangster mob crews in New York. I think in the book we mention... Uh, that the hitmen of Murder, Inc. have carried out anywhere between 400 to 1,000 contract killings uh, with their favorite method uh, was using an ice pick. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, so in this th- this bodega used to be what was called the Midnight Rose Candy Store, and it was a 24-hour coffee candy shop.
0: That's the most suspicious name, can I say, for, <laughs> a, <laughs> for a place, a 24-hour shop named Midnight Rose. Yeah. I feel like that's, oh, you're already in trouble.
2: Right, and um, there were apparently a row of telephones in the back, and um, this, murder, this, uh, um, this syndicate would use the telephones to coordinate the hits. So um, the hitmen would wait in the candy store for mm-hmm. a phone to ring, and then they would be given instructions on where to go and who they were going to kill. Um, and it said that the owner, Rosie Gold, um, knew about uh, everything that was going on, and she sort of got some kickback by allowing this to happen in her store.
0: Yeah, so that's crazy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, wow, right? Uh, I think that's really interesting, but you brought something up. I mean, why, why, why did you have to fight for it?
2: I, it's a place that no longer looks very interesting. Um, yeah. There were photos we, we couldn't use um, that showed what the place looked uh, like way back as mm-hmm. a candy store. Now it really looks like, any ordinary bodega, the building is uh, very simple. Um, and so um, I think some of the feedback was like, that it just wasn't very interesting, but I think the story is fascinating. And yeah. um, if you were to go there then and you had this book, you would then see like, get some color about what this neighborhood used to be like. And East New York actually is a focus of a lot of attention for New York City right now. Yeah. It's a, a prime redevelopment area. Um, there was some controversy earlier as they were figuring out the rezoning of it. And Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see a lot of news about East New York in the next five years. So that was another reason I really wanted to make sure that it was included, even though it's very far away. Um, It's really in deep Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, But
0: for the true explorer. Exactly. it's Exactly. It's not an easy one. You can just get to yeah and, and that's so interesting though that you got that feedback because to me that's exactly what made it interesting like <laughs> i brought up like the fact that it looks so ordinary but <laughs> is not it has this you know it literally has blood on its hands yeah. so yeah that's that's great that you discovered that sort of thing so tell us the the story
1: behind the pacifier tree so the pacifier tree is as we s- described it in the book a neighborhood rite of passage and it's located um in the neighborhood of borough park on 48th street and it's a tree full of pacifiers and basically all the kids from the neighborhood when they grow out of their pacifiers mm-hmm. come to um attach it on this little tree so <laughs> it's <a laughs> it's also a little like a i don't know it's it's like a quirky fun thing that you might not see it, it actually took us quite a while to look at the exact tree because and like what we may think, pacifiers are not that easy to. Uh, it's a spot to from to far spot. away. Yeah. You bring your binoculars. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're searching. We so were like driving in the neighborhood for like quite a while, and like looking at all the trees, and suddenly we see one. And I'm like, oh wait, we think that's it, and so there was a there was also an interesting one.
2: Um, another one of my favorite spots is Golden Gate Fancy Fruits Grocery Store, ah. which is in Marine Park, and um, this is a place that looks like it's from 1939 and in fact that is exactly what the owner uh said to me when when i walked in you just stepped into 1939 um and his name is john Cortez, and he um really inherited this grocery store from his father who opened it Mm -hmm. and has been working there since he was a kid he's a world war ii veteran uh he's got one of the sharpest minds we've ever encountered his memory is is uh impeccable he can remember the model numbers of the equipment that he used in world war ii to demine northern france and all the towns um that they liberated and walked through he remembered all the names wow um but the grocery store is is a real trip it has um wooden floors that are creaky a tin ceiling uh he weighs everything through those um the old weights uh, where it would hang, and you mm-hmm. would, it would be a little basket. Yeah. Um, in the back room, there is a wood uh, cold storage and an old stove, potbelly stove. Um, and he's probably around 93 at this point. Um, and he really does it to have something to do. He, he has a neighbor who runs a shop Uh, down the street, and they have breakfast every morning. Um, It really was just a real honor to meet him and have him Mm -hmm. tell us his life story and and to be in in this space. So that was um, one of my favorites.
1: Another place I really liked is the Newtown Creek Digester Eggs. Mm. These are like these futuristic-looking huge eggs in uh, Greenpoint. And so they ha- <laughs> we went there for Valentine's Day. And so it's, like, their annual um, uh, tour of, like, the digester, like, Valentine's Day di- di- digester egg um, tour. And Sounds so romantic. Yeah, it's, it's very romantic. <laughs> <laughs> and you can tell that, like, everybody who was there was, was like weirdly excited by the yeah. <laughs> by the moment and so it's a futuristic sewage treatment plant with a uh, two honors for excellence in design and actually when you look at them at night they are lit in purple or blue and it's like very very uh, it's very cool looking mm-hmm. and uh, when you take a tour of the facility um, it's led by the head of the of the facility who explains like how uh, how the, the the whole place works, which is fascinating. And you also get to go at the very top of the digester eggs, and from there you get like a, an amazing view of Greenpoint, uh, Newtown Creek, and the whole area. So it's uh, it's the best Valentine date possible. <laughs> <laughs> Take note.
0: <laughs>
2: And the last space I want to talk about is fun for both location and and the process of how we got the photograph. So inside Long Island University, Mm -hmm. uh, one of the buildings used to be a movie theater, one of those old, grand uh, movie theaters of the heyday of of cinema. Yeah. And it's been converted into a basketball court. And so there are these kind of epic, famous photographs by these French photographers um, that we had seen of this, this like basketball team playing under like this amazing, uh, decorative, uh, stage. Mm -hmm. Um, and we knew this had to be in the book, but getting there was very difficult. (laughs) So, um, we always tried to contact, but oftentimes some places, uh, don't respond so i showed up one day and i, I look kind of like a student <laughs> so they allowed me in past the gates
0: wait was this on purpose like you dressed the part
2: um no i mean i think or i just, just generally just i look you younger okay um i, I, I so probably you brought had like a backpack, backpack. Yeah, anyway yeah. okay see? with my camera sneaky um <laughs> so we walked in there i walked in there uh w- walked around the campus and then i had a vague idea i knew where the building was and. There was actually a door open into like pitch blackness, so I was like, "I'll I'll just walk in here," <laughs> and I realized that I was standing inside the theater, but it was completely dark. So I I walked out of the theater, best slash basketball court, mm-hmm. um, and there is a part of this building that was originally the main lobby of this movie theater, and so now they host. Um, events there. So there was actually a wedding that was being set up and mm-hmm. there were like three guys in the wedding party and they were already drunk. <laughs> and so they were like, Hey, what are you up to? Uh, they were, they were trying to offer me drinks. They tried to like do a little dance with me. And then I said, well, I'm here because I'm trying to photograph the, the basketball court slash theater, but the lights are off. Is there any way like who are you working with here for this event that maybe I could talk to? So they send me out to the security guards and the security guards are like, how did you get in here? (laughs) (laughs) They were not amused. Um, So they sent down their head security guard. Uh So I had to explain, well, I'm doing a project about old theaters in New York and like uh, I want to photograph. Um, And so they gave me some generic answer about how they host events and I should look at the calendar. But then as I was leaving someone from the administration, uh, pulled me aside a little bit and said um, you should come on a campus tour because then you'll be able to see it. Um, And so then at this point I sent (laughs) Augustan to go on a campus tour where he pretended to be a student interested in photography. Awesome. (laughs) In order to get the shot that we needed. So sneaky.
0: That's great. That's next (laughs) level. Okay. That's a good story. So... (laughs) So is there? (laughs) This is uh, this. I like to to make the podcast focus a bit on learning and and trying to draw some lessons. Is there anything that you hoped people might take away at a high level from the book?
2: For me, it's just that wherever you live, there's like an endless amount of things to discover, Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's aligned with our mission at Untapped Cities as well. um, Is that no matter how much you think you know about a place or a subject. Um there's more if you just kind of like turn your mindset slightly, you know, 90 degrees, let's say. Yeah. Um and you'll uncover a lot of stuff. So for me that's the importance of the work we do at Untapped but also um with this book.
1: <coughs> yeah, I completely agree and I would also add that we are completely sucked into technology today on our mm-hmm. phones, uh, but if we just make it a point to go out, explore, drop our phones, talk to people, look at things that we usually overlook, whether it's uh, a building, um, just a a train car, anything. And if we talk to people, uh, we actually get to discover a lot, a lot, a lot of places. Like Mm -hmm. half of these places we were able to get access to just because we spoke to the right person and we explained what we were here for. And so yeah, the, the lesson for me is let's try to spend a little less time on our phones and more time outside. I think you brought earlier the the idea of uh, making it like a a goal to go to all these places in like a year. But like, yeah, that's exactly it. Like how how about you say with your friends, hey, let's meet up and let's hit like these five places today. And um, and as you'll be discovering these places, I'm sure you'll see even more places that we have not included in the book. So yeah, it's just switching mindset. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that's great. I, I totally agree. So uh, and we've mentioned Untapped Cities now several times. Mm-hmm. So maybe talk about Untapped Cities and what you guys are up to.
2: So Untapped Cities is the company that Augustine and I run together. It is um half online magazine where we talk about uh quirky things that We'll hopefully will surprise you every day that you come on the website um, and then we also run tours for new yorkers to rediscover their cities so we'll talk about we'll bring people to the places we talk about uh, and we publish about
1: yeah, I mean, the only thing I would add is that we think of ourselves as being in the business of discovery. So if you mm-hmm. want to discover something in New York, you can uh, do it from the comfort of your couch by reading an article about, let's say, the secrets of Grand Central Terminal, or you can discover these secrets by coming in person uh, with us. And so it's it's really a um, discovery, The discovery is the, the way you want it for the curious mind.
0: Aha, <laughs> hopefully
1: all of us. So you used uh,
0: it's untapped cities, plural. Is there Mm -hmm. is there another city, more cities?
2: Uh, We do cover content from other cities these days. We focus mostly on New York, but Mm -hmm. we are uh, working on our expansion on the tours end to many other cities in the U.S.
0: Oh, exciting. Anything you can tell us? Um, The West Coast, the West Coast, Mm -hmm. where I'm from, Los Angeles. Ah. Oh yes, we well love it. Actually, LA. Los Angeles. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> well, that's where I'm from, if so I will tell you. Yeah, yeah I've got lots of tips <laughs> for you, so Great. awesome. Um, so cool, let's move on to the thunder round. I'm just gonna ask you guys some like fun, silly questions, and then we'll wrap it up. Sound good? Yep. Yes. Yay. All right, so either of you or both can answer these guys. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite food or drink? Uh,
2: favorite food is definitely chocolate, and the reason for that is that um, when I was young, I was allergic to milk, mm. and I was told by my parents that I was allergic to chocolate as a result, um, and I discovered at around age 21 that there's something called dark chocolate. <laughs> With no milk. <laughs> With no milk. Wow, life-changing. <laughs> and changing. so I think I've been making up for lost time <laughs> ever That's since. That's a great reason.
0: <laughs> at the beginning, I was going to stop you and say, that you don't have to justify it, but that, that actually <laughs> makes perfect sense.
1: And I'm going to be very French and say that my favorite drink is red wine. Okay, <laughs>
0: great. Do you have anything p- in particular? Wh- what do you recommend? Mm-hmm. Someone's going to go out and get a bottle tonight.
1: Uh, I love Pomerol within the border region. Okay. Um, usually any wines from there are, are pretty good. Sounds, sounds yeah. fancy. <laughs> good. Uh, what about places? I love to travel.
0: Where's your favorite place you've ever been?
2: So I have a very soft spot for the country of Bolivia. Okay. Um, one of the reasons is that Augustine and I met there on a backpacking trip Ooh. in the town of Santa Cruz. Uh, and um, But I was also sent there when I worked as a merchandiser for Abercrombie & Fitch uh, right after college. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a few factories that we ran out or we um, were our suppliers down there. Mm-hmm. So I was sent to figure out uh, some supply chain stuff that was going on. Um, and it was really a city that... Um, and a layout of a city that I had never seen before. Hmm. So um, it's a South American city, but built really into a place that looks like a crater. Um, and so basically the city grew from the very bottom all the way up to around its edges and spilled over. Um, oh, that is interesting. And um, later I study it um, in planning school and analyze why the layout of, of this particular city enabled them to overthrow a few, few governments in the mid two thousands. And I also discovered that I was there right in between two government overthrows. I just didn't realize it until later. Um, So to me, like uh, there was this, I just felt that there was something different about the city. And then later Mm -hmm. I got to, to, to really research it. Um, And then really just, the, the pace of activity in South America in these cities is just really really exciting the like the number of buses and mm-hmm. uh, you know it's it's a little less planned and organized than here and there's just such a, a nice contrast w- when you visit these places
0: yeah sometimes that can be fun um,
1: yeah one of the pla- one of the countries I've been to that really like is uh, Cuba uh, and actually mostly so partially because it's like frozen in time. You see like these old cars, yeah, and like yeah. all these like postcards images that I had before to go there. But also because the people were absolutely amazing. They were very much more, um, they were speaking much more freely than what I was expecting about mm-hmm. the conditions uh, of life uh, there. And this is something that surprised me. They were very open to talking about the challenges that they're facing and, uh, and extremely welcoming. So I would, um, yeah, that's a very special place. I to go there before Cuba was opened to the U.S. Yes, I went there, uh, I forgot, maybe like 10 years ago, 8 years ago. Mm.
0: Yeah. A while ago. Mm-hmm. So both of you have to answer this question, mandatory. <laughs> uh, if you could wave a magic wand and change any one thing, what would it be and why?
2: I'm not going to go full political on this, but I do wish that we were in a time where we really could take a step back and really appreciate the diversity that's available mm-hmm. in this country um, and to really learn from all the different people and places and things that exist here. I think we do this every day in our work and um, we we constantly meet interesting people who are passionate about different projects. And then I read the news and I feel disheartened that um, in some ways things are going into silos and... Uh, we're having right now a hard time uh, creating avenues of communication. Mm-hmm. So um, I have hope that that this will um, this will pass, and we can kind of continue this mission of discovery that I feel is really the the path for the future uh, globally as well. But um, yeah. <laughs> okay.
1: All right. So. Mine is very unrealistic, but I guess that's fine. Yes. <laughs> um, I would do like a mandatory, like I would, if I was the U- the U.S. government, for example, I would do like a mandatory one-year travel around the world for all my citizens uh-huh. to make sure that they can see the diversity that you're mentioning, Michelle. but like the diversity of countries, cultures that are out there uh, and that are uh, not in America because I think we would all um, win from this. Yeah.
2: And as a fun one, I would say that I wish... I would not be allergic to cats because Ah. it's really my spirit animal. Uh, We had a kitten that was so adorable that we rescued. And then we had to give it away to another couple because I just, I just literally couldn't breathe. Yeah. Um,
0: So hypoallergenic.
2: Yeah. But it's just, it's like so disheartening to me that I'm, like, I feel at one with these animals, but then I'm, like, deathly allergic to them. It just doesn't make sense.
0: <laughs> there's, a, there's some sort of lesson or something in there. Some I'm pig. not sure yeah. what that means. Yeah. Our desire for things we can't have. Yeah. I, to I don't be know. continued. All right. I, I wish you the best of luck. Maybe, <laughs> they'll, maybe they'll come up with a pill for that at some point. Um, all right. Well, this has been great. Um, thank you so much, Michelle and Augustin, for joining me with uh their discussion about their wonderful book secret brooklyn an unusual guide and their great company untapped cities you should read the book go on one of their tours and i'm john monaster this is read and learn live thanks so
1: much thank you thank you
0: thanks so much for listening to this episode of read learn live if you liked it tell a friend and subscribe on itunes and google play if you hated it tell a friend and subscribe on itunes and google play and so it goes